I feel like the way it works is the internet goes from my house to your house and then back to my house, but not the opposite, which is weird. You would think the internet would just go in the two directions, but it doesn't. It seems to go out and back. Which is a w- I'm going to end recording. <laughs> <laughs> Chris Toomey explains the internet. (laughs) Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Chris Toomey. And I'm Steph Vicari. And together we're here to share a bit of what we've learned along the way. So Steph, how's your week going? It's been really adventurous. Uh, It's been a fun week. So starting off on a more personal note, Tim and I built a fire pit in our backyard and used it for the first time last night, which was delightful. It turns out fire pits are pretty easy to build. You use a shovel to create a flat space. You lay a stacked ring of like curved retaining wall blocks. You add some lava rocks and boom, you got yourself a fire pit. Was that lava rocks that you said? Mm-hmm. Are that's, those that's probably the fanciest part. Rocks are the lava that are rocks. like formed from lava cooling? I don't know, but that sounds cool. So I'm going to say yes. Well, I wonder, is this like it's a thing that is very directly named for what it is? Or is this like a very well branded product out there in the world? I don't know. I'll have to look it up. I just Googled it to see if I could find an answer. And I have too much information and I'm just not even going to try. But I like your answer. So let's just I'm going to go with it. Sounds good. All right. So we'll run with that. These are made from actual volcanoes. Uh, but that's exciting. Mm-hmm, Fire pits mm-hmm. are fantastic. Uh, one of my friends got one of the like fancy things that are on Instagram all the time. I think it's a, like solo stove or something like that. It's got nice air ventilation and things and does quite well. And uh, there's something about a good fire pit. It's really a nice way to spend some time. I'm with you. And then our other fun activity this week is we have been pup sitting my parents' dog, Daisy. And while putting, she's delightful. Uh, she's also only like two. She's still in that kind of like puppy range. So she is full of energy. And while putting up our Christmas tree, she found an unattended glass of spiked eggnog and proceeded to drink it and then fell promptly asleep on the couch. It was adorable and seems very fitting as to like what any human would do as well. Yeah, living the the holiday dream right there. But yeah, that's uh, most of the excitement in my week. Oh, I do have a question for you that's related to something that we were discussing during a previous episode where you were striving for ways to test redirecting traffic to a canonical host. And I'm really curious where that ended up and how that's going. Yeah, it's mostly gone well. Um, I was able to write some request specs. It was a little bit tricky to do the testing because the configuration lives in an initializer. I wonder if I could have pulled that out, but the initializer spring was closing over it. My my old friend spring was uh, getting me in trouble this time, but that's fine. I knew about it and I worked around it and I'm willing to <laughs> fight this battle. But yeah, config initializers get run once at the startup and they don't get reloaded. So as a result, every time I made a change in the initializer, I would have to kill spring, restart the specs, uh, but that's fine. I'm fine with that. Uh, so I was able to write some specs and I was very happy to have that level of test coverage, especially because I knew there was the canonical host stuff, which was important, but there were also each of the other apps that I'm working on slowly folding back a bunch of subdomains into the one domain. I knew that I had more DNS type stuff to deal with. So I wanted to have a good test suite that I could continue adding to as I added new subdomains and new behavior in that space. So it was important to me to get that in place. And I did. Our spec and request specs had some pretty nice handling around that. I did have to allow some mystery guests. I wasn't able to change the configuration at sort of spec time. I wanted to use climate control, which is a gem from ThoughtBot that allows you to change, dynamically change environment variables within the context of a spec. Fortunately, I wasn't able to do that for the same reasons. 
closing over the value in the config initializer when it boots up so I can't dynamically mess with it in a spec. Again, I probably could have found a weird dynamic way to work around that, but I opted for the simpler runtime configuration and not changing things to make my tests easier, which is always a fun consideration. But overall, everything went well. I did set up a parallel domain and subdomain structure on staging, and I was able to do this testing on staging in a more production-like environment, which was good. That made, that gave me more confidence before I did any actual DNS changes, because DNS changes are uh, hard to roll back, as they say. That sounds really fancy when you're saying that you set up a parallel subdomain for staging. How complicated was that? Is that fancy or is that pretty straightforward? It's mostly annoying, not so much fancy, I guess I would describe it. So like we have example.com, let's say that's our application. And then we also have staging.example.com. So that's the staging instance. But then there are also subdomains on the main app. So there's like subapp.example.com. And that is a subdomain for the sub app thing that I'm now folding back in. I needed to also produce subapp.staging.example.com. So I just sort of like push the whole routing structure, the whole subdomain thing up again a level. So it all exists on top of staging as well. So I basically just recreated it and that worked and it was fine. And it really was just kind of annoying to have to set up the whole parallel domain structure, but not terribly complicated. They're all just C names pointing to the various Heroku SSL endpoints. Gotcha. Yeah, that does sound more just sort of like annoying than necessarily like complicated. (laughs) Uh, In regards to testing and introducing like the mystery guest and the fact that you can't override the value uh, since it's being set in the initializer, does that mean that the tests are actually running against that production value or did you find a way for it to reference a different value? The tests are running against whatever the configured environment variable is. So there is a .env.test file, and that is what defines them. And I did another thing that I don't really believe in, but it was the time. I wrote a comment above a bunch of lets in an RSpec. So I don't even know who I was that day. Uh, But it said the following lets are defining local variables for all of these mystery guests. They are defined in the .env.test file. That's the best solution I could come up with, and I didn't want to fight it more on dogmatic purity reasons. So I was like, yeah, this works. And it gives me tests that on CI, they will always run fresh with whatever the configured values are. And on staging, things are testable again. But I did, there was one thing that I failed at, which was in the config initializer that is configuring rack rewrite, which is what I'm using for all of this. I am using env bracket and then the name of the environment variable I want to get. So I'm just getting it out of the environment hash, but I'm not fetching it. So the env.fetch is the alternative way. And as a result, if the value is not there, it won't blow up. I should have made it blow up. That is the thing I should have done. So production and staging were fine. I was very much aware of, I need to set these values. These are very important to have moving forward. Otherwise, the app will behave weirdly. So I made sure I configured them on production and on staging. I did not think through all of the different variants of local environment .env files, basically. The configuration that we have in the app is a little bit different than what I, I think I would normally go for. Or I've been confused enough times over the years with .env. There's a .env, like a .env file checked into the repository. And then there's a .env.local that is ignored. And that is where each developer can have their own specific configuration. I put my local configurations in that file. And this isn't a big deal. The other developers will just run it and they'll realize they need it. Except everything's a 301 redirect. And Chrome caches those really intensely. So they started to boot up the app. They had an empty value. They got redirected to SSL nothing slash path, 
So there was no domain, but there was SSL. And then another time they got redirected to the SSL version of the canonical host name. And so in a bunch of ways, the app was just completely broken for them. And it was really hard to unwind because again, Chrome is caching those redirects really aggressively. So that was a place in which I made my fellow coworkers day a lot harder than it needed to be. Ooh, there's so much there that I'm really interested in. (laughs) The first question that I have is I definitely think of you as a fetch person, (laughs) as in you definitely reach for fetch. (laughs) You like to make fetch happen. I do like to make fetch happen. That is true. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm intrigued. Was there any reason that you changed from your default of using fetch? No. And as you say it, I'm like, it is. It's like a defining (laughs) characteristic. I I pride myself on my use of fetch. It's one of my more common code review comments is, oh, could we use fetch here to make sure that the app will not end up in a bad state? Nils are bad. We want to avoid nils at all costs. Here's one of the many ways. I I don't know what was going on that day. But I like that you you zeroed in on that. You're like, this sounds like a thing that you would never do. Why did you do it? I don't have a good reason. Stuff just happens. I don't know. It is a very strong part of your developer brand. You know, I think it'd be funny to see like our most common comments that we leave on PRs, sort of like you can go through Slack. And if you want, there was a fun project that people at ThoughtBot had worked on a while back where they uh, took a list of everyone's like top emojis that they were using and then showed like this person, like this is the emoji that they use the most. And that was really fun to sort of see like which emoji you tend to identify. I feel like that would also be fun for PR comments. Like what is your top comment that you typically leave on PRs would be fun and satisfying for me. And then the other thing that came to mind is when you talked about comments, and then there's sort of like this feeling of like, it feels bad, like leaving a comment, because it's also part of our developer brand where we avoid comments as much as possible. But then there are really good uses and use cases for comments. And I think you just highlighted a really good one, because ultimately, we want to help the next person that comes along behind us. And it made me think of a conference talk that I'm pretty sure we've discussed on the show before. But if you haven't watched it, it's really worth watching, not you specifically, I know you've watched it, Chris, for for the people, the people at home listening. It's the Art of Code Comments by Sarah Drosner. And it talks about how we can overcorrect to the point that where we think something is entirely bad, but the truth is that is an overcorrection and there are really good use cases. So wanted to bring that back into the fold since it's not often we get to talk about comments in a positive light. Yeah, typically we're saying other things. It's interesting to me that there are two examples of that. There are things that I typically highlight not using, both comments and lets, it was comments on a block of lets. But I think that idea, the sort of theme of Sarah's talk of, it's probably good to correct in this direction, but it's important to not overcorrect and to not become dogmatic and et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I guess I feel good about my not being dogmatic other than breaking people's machines and other stuff. But uh, you know, you win some, you lose some. But overall, the the DNS and domain canonical host, all that stuff is going well now. I think I've resolved the issues with other people's developers. So I was very quick to hop on calls to try and unwind that because I really hate when I break someone's setup, uh, especially in like this annoying way that was really hard to get out of. So we we put our heads together for a little while, got them out of that. And now I'm slowly working through the rest of the applications and sort of folding more of these subdomains in, which is starting to move more quickly as well, which is always nice. But um, yeah. That sums up that adventure. What else is up in your world? So I have also been on an adventure. In some of my free time, I've been helping out with a client project's deployment issue. And their deployment process includes Concourse, Google Cloud Platform, Kubernetes, and Docker. All tech stacks, which I have zero authority in, 
and sharing knowledge. Uh, but this is our podcast, so I'm just going to do my best and we're going to go from here. <laughs> I've heard of all of those things, I think. No, not even all of them. Actually, the first one I didn't know of, but. Concourse was the new one that I hadn't heard of. I've heard, I've also heard of Google Cloud Platform. I haven't interacted with it, but I'm familiar with it. Same for Kubernetes, certainly interacted with Docker. But Concourse was the new one that I was also unfamiliar with. And it's a continuous deployment tool. And it's open source, so it seems pretty cool in ways that you can build tasks for then. And it has a nice visual diagram as well to show these are the tasks that you have and the different processes that your deployment phase will go through and then gives you a little bit of feedback about each step in that deployment process. So it seems pretty neat, but I've been diving into that to understand the deployment issue that this project has run into. And the biggest problem right now is really observability. So the error message that I'm seeing is captured and surfaced in concourse, and it states that a timeout occurred, and it says that timed out waiting for the condition. That's the entire sentence that it says, is timed out waiting for the condition. That is that is the <laughs> sentence. <laughs> There's a little bit more to go with that, but nothing helpful. So I'm, I'm just leaving that out of the explanation that I'm providing so yeah, I, I have no idea what the condition represents, but it's clearly a very important condition. So we suspect, and I say we because CTO Joe has kindly donated some of his time to this cause as well, that the timeout is related to potentially one of these two things. So the timeout could be related to a package being installed via Helm, which is a package manager for Kubernetes. So similar to how Rails has Bundler to install gems, Kubernetes has Helm to install charts. So that could be where that timeout issue is coming from. The other probably more likely scenario that I'm exploring is that on November 20th of this year, Docker Hub, which is a place where we're pulling this deployment process is pulling Docker images, introduced rate limits for free and anonymous accounts, which is what we're using. Specifically, free Docker Hub users are limited to 100 and 200 container image pull requests per six hours which sounds like plenty for our deployment process, because that's still a fair amount. And this application isn't being deployed all that frequently. But we have a suspicion that Concourse may also be pulling from Docker Hub, or there's some process that is running more frequently that could be making requests to Docker Hub. And then that is contributing to our rate limiting that we're experiencing. So that's, that's our current theories, but I'm currently still investigating because it's been really hard to find out specifically like a more concrete error message to say like this request to Docker Hub timed out or if there was something else that went wrong. Defining logging and error messages, like getting those to the right level of granularity, there's absolutely an art form to that. One that I have no experience in. I'm just a consumer of them the vast majority of the time, but I still can look at that and be like, man, somebody should have done something different there. Yeah, that is what we're running into. And maybe it's that I'm new to some of these tools that are being used in the deployment process. But it's, so far, it looks like that when this deployment process was built, because it has been more handcrafted with Kubernetes instead of something that I'm more familiar with, with like Heroku, that perhaps this person didn't add in also the logging and bringing it to an easily accessible level. So then when something goes wrong, it's very easy to find. Or maybe that developer would know exactly where it is and could go find it. But me, who's picking up the project now, I don't know where to go look for it. So that's current. Currently, what I'm on the hunt for is a more specific error. There was something you said in there that was interesting of, well, maybe the original developer would just know, but for anyone else that's following on later, that as like a theme, if ever that's an idea that I have in my head, they're like, oh, well, I'll probably know later on. Like, no, no, no. 
almost certainly I won't even know in the future when I revisit this code, but definitely everyone else. And so it definitely is such a hard line to hit, but how do we make it so that future people interacting with this code or this build pipeline or whatever it is can come into it and comfortably and understandably fix things when they're broken and all of that. Um, But again, absolutely an art form and not one that I even think that I'm terribly good at. Yeah, I I certainly agree. I also recognize that this is just one of my quirks where whenever I'm talking about like another developer that I don't know and the situation that they were in, I find that myself being overly gracious because I don't know their situation. So that's also just part of who I am, I guess. Because yes, I agree with you that it's very important to consider the next person that's going to be on the project after you and won't be able to magically find stuff. In regards to the Docker Hub pull rate limiting issue, one way that I have considered that we could fix that if that does turn out to be the issue is that Google Registry has a mirror of popular Docker images. So that is one way that we could then reduce the amount of requests that we're making to Docker Hub. There may also be a paid version of Docker Hub, now that I'm saying this out loud because I'd referenced earlier that there is the free user version in which you're rate limited, so that could be the other option as well. But before going into the paid tier, it would make sense to go ahead and leverage some of those commonly used images like Nginx or something like that and pull those from Google Registry instead and then see if that helps with the issue as well. But we're also in a weird space where we're, we're trying hard to find out a more concrete error, and one of the best ways to do that would be to run another deploy and watch it locally and then be able to see all the steps. But then we're very nervous to do that because any downtime is significant to this project. So we want to be very protective of that happening. Thankfully, with this deployment process, it is using a rolling deploy. So it's spinning up a new service with a new code. And then once that new service is responsive, then traffic will be redirected from the existing production code to then that new code. So that's why production's fine right now, even with the failed deployment earlier and why we think it would probably be fine to like run another deployment. So then we could see a a more exact error, but there's like just enough of like, what if, and then if it goes down, we still don't really know all about this deployment process. And then how long would it take for us to get it back online that we're still in the digging through logs right now before we pursue that option. We're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Scout APM. Scout APM is quickly becoming my go-to performance monitoring tool for Rails apps. I love opening it up to see a prioritized list of issues that I can quickly knock out before end users ever see them. With the weekly digest and alerts, I can rest easy knowing that Scout will let me know if issues arise. Ultimately, Scout APM empowers developers to spend more time building great products by minimizing the effort required to identify and resolve performance issues. Scout's developer-centric approach quickly pinpoints N plus one queries, memory bloat, and other abnormalities. Their tracing logic saves me a ton of time by tying bottlenecks back to the line of code causing the issue. Give Scout a try for free today, and you'll have the performance insights you've been dreaming of within four minutes. Sign up through scoutapm.com slash bikeshed, and Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. So give it a try, and thanks again to Scout for sponsoring this episode of The Bike Shed. I have uh, almost nothing to add to your debugging adventure. Uh, it sounds like you're thinking or have far more knowledge than I do of all of these systems to the extent that, I don't know, must have been six months that I thought Kubernetes was actually pronounced Kubernetes. So that's about how much I know about that world. So so I can definitely relate to that because while pairing with Joe, as we were typing in some commands to ask Kubernetes some questions about the deploy, the most successful deploy, and then the new failed one, uh, we were also looking at some of the encrypted secrets. And the control or the command that you run to then ask some of the questions to Kubernetes is kube control, but it's spelled K-U-B-E. So I kept saying kube control and Joe's like, it's kube. The cool kids say kube. 
Wait, so it is. Uh, so that one I would have I would have been with you. I'm all cube all day on that. It looks like it. But I mean, you look at Kubernetes, the beginning letters look like cube. But yes, uh, shortened, even when it's K-U-B-E, it is still kube. So if you want to know the lingo and you want to fit in, then it's kube control is the other hot tip I've learned this week. More than anything, I want to fit in and be cool. So <laughs> I will try to pronounce things properly moving forward. One other cool tool I've learned from working with this project is there's a repository that houses all the tasks that are being used via the concourse deployment pipeline. And a number of these tasks rely on secrets, and those secrets are stored in that repository. But then, of course, you can't store them in plain text. So maybe they're like an API key or some password that Concourse needs access to or the deployment process needs access to. So they're using a tool called GitCrypt, which is something that I haven't used before. Have you used that? I have not. It's a very cool tool where you can uh, store your secrets in a file. You can keep those in GitHub, but then you have an encryption key. So then that way, anyone that is looking through that repository can actually see the real values unless they also have the correct encryption key. And the reason it seems really neat to me is because it does give you version control. So if you wanted to look back in history to see when something was changed, I find that part pretty valuable. So otherwise, I haven't worked with it heavily, but I just thought that was something pretty neat that I hadn't run across before as a way to store secret values, but in like a more public space, but keeping them safe. Um, That's not just like the classic environment variables that you and I would typically reach for. Yeah, I definitely, I still reach for environment variables basically 100% of the time. I'm thinking that Rails got a feature like this, encrypted secrets, I think is what they call it. And I've just never really looked at it because I'm I'm so in the habit of putting things into the environment and using that as a mechanism. Yes, Rails 5.1 introduce encrypted secrets or encrypted credentials. You have a secrets YAML file, and I think you can have different environments within that. So you can have a development, production, etc. There's an interesting aspect of, I guess you just have one shared encryption key for that, and then everyone has that. I would hope not, but then like, I don't want the production encryption key to be a thing that we give out to everyone that needs to run this to this repository locally. So this is a thing that there are probably good answers to, and we just don't know them because we never do it. So I'm going to stop talking about this because now I'm just going to sound silly, but I, that's a thing I would want for this differentiation between those environments and protection of the production ones. But I'm sure that that is built in in some way. Yeah, that's a that's a fair question. And one I, I'm also not sure. Uh, so I haven't tried to decrypt any of the secrets just yet. In fact, I've been going through Google's cloud shell to then see the values that I needed, which then are base64 encoded and then decoding those values that way. But then I got interested in this repo once I realized it existed, because it seems like a far more convenient way for me to then be able to access the secrets that I need but I haven't actually gone down that road yet. So I shall find out. Uh, But I suspect there's just one encryption key. I don't know why, but I'm just going to like shoot my shot and say that I think there's one encryption key that's being passed around for all these values. Sometimes you just got to shoot your shot. All right. You are on the record now. I don't think that phrase fits here. No, it's fantastic. (laughs) And I'm so happy you used it. (laughs) So pivoting away from me using silly phrases and trying to make up knowledge that I don't yet obtain, what else have you been up to? I think you just provided the subtitle for podcasting. It's using silly phrases and describing things. (laughs) At least that's my understanding of it. But yes, in other news for me, uh, this week I converted the front-end code base that I've been building out using Inertia and Svelte and other fun things. Uh, I ported that from JavaScript into TypeScript, which was an interesting experience. I got to uh, sort of go through the whole emotional journey that is moving from what is a not strongly typed language into a strongly typed variant of it and feel the positives of that and the negatives of that. But yeah, overall, very happy that I did it, but it was a bit of a journey to get there. 
So interestingly, I didn't start with TypeScript, which would normally be the way that I'm doing things. Even inside projects, I'm using TypeScript for basically anything that I'm writing JavaScript in. But in this particular case, I was introducing enough new technology into the tech stack of this company that I wanted to be somewhat purposeful and I didn't want to overload, essentially, is how it went. There was the one other developer that I'm working with, and I wanted to make sure that when I had that conversation of like, hey... So I did some stuff. I wanted to shorten that list down to three new technologies, which I think is a couple episodes back. We can include a link in the show notes, but we did a segment on good idea, terrible idea of me introducing all of these new technologies and the particular decisions around them. But in total, I introduced Tailwind for styling, Inertia.js for binding the front end and the back end, and then Svelte as a front end view rendering library. And I specifically chose not to also include TypeScript because I assumed that I could port everything to TypeScript down the road, which was true, but it was a little bit more difficult than if I had done it up front. Like I had to do the one big transition over and I had to write a bunch of type files because Inertia and Svelte are respectively like half in the camp of TypeScript. So I had to fill in some gaps there and that becomes really difficult when you're trying to type third-party libraries. That's where stuff gets weird. And it was a little bit tricky, but eventually I got there. So that part was unpleasant. But once I got on the other side and started to add additional functionality and extract some things, I have an analytics library that I'm building, like a tiny little utility helper class sort of thing. Having types for that was fantastic. And it keeps telling me when I'm doing something silly. And so I'm very, very happy to have made the transition, but it was a bit of an adventure. How did you fill in the types for that third party? Because I feel like that is also one area that I have felt pain in working with types is then that I'm collaborating with a library that then doesn't introduce the types that I need. So I'm curious how you handled that. Whenever possible for there's a handful of other libraries that we're bringing in, I would look on definitely typed, which is the shared type repository for third party type definitions for libraries. So like I think I was using confetti JS, which makes fun confetti dynamically on the screen. So that's cool. I think actually, no, I think I had to write the types for that myself, which was fun. You had to write types for confetti. I did. Those seem like such opposing worlds, like such whimsy and fun, and then introducing like types. <laughs> I'm a big believer in controlled, structured fun. It's sort of who I am as a person. Now, it's basically just the constructor function because you basically say confetti on the screen in this shape. And so that was pretty easy to type. But within TypeScript, you can define the type roots. So that's a compiler option in TypeScript that says, look here for additional type definitions. By default, TypeScript is configured to look in node modules slash at types, which is going to be a directory. And that's where definitely typed will install. And I think some packages will also install there. But you can add to that the type roots and say like, okay, look in node modules slash types, but also look in my custom typings folder in the project. And then you can add a .d.ts file. So in my case, I think I called it like custom.d.ts. I think the D stands for definition, maybe. Um, but in that, there is a portion of the TypeScript syntax for declare module and then the package name. And then within that, you say namespace and interface, and you basically define all of those structures. So I ended up having to do that specifically for the inertia-svelte library that I'm working with, which is the, the binding between those two sides of the aisle. Yeah, thank you. It's been a while, but all of that rings a bell. So I like how you described it earlier as an emotional process. Like I feel like anytime that you have to go back and add tests later or add types later, it's going to be an emotional ride and it's going to be hard. But it sounds like you made that journey and you're happy with the final product. 
Oh, absolutely. Going through it was difficult. And I felt that pain that's like, I, I could just get by. I've been writing JavaScript and it's okay. And frankly, my editor already knows a bunch of stuff because it's sort of sneakily running TypeScript behind the scene all the time anyway. VS Code is doing that in most cases when folks are running. But I knew in my heart of hearts that it's a place that I wanted to get to. And so I did push through. It was, it was interesting. I listened to a podcast. Uh, I want to say it was the Undefined podcast. They had on Rich Harris, who's the creator of Svelte, and Evan Yu, who is the creator of Vue.js, which was you know a wonderful collection of the minds of current other JavaScript libraries. And the topic of TypeScript came up, and particularly they were sort of poking at Rich Harris, who he writes his projects in TypeScript. So like Svelte is written in TypeScript, and Rollup, which is another project that he built, is written in TypeScript. But he was describing the friction and the resistance. And when he's just starting a little projects, he doesn't want that overhead and that weight. And so it was interesting to hear that contrast, because I deeply respect his ideas about how to build software and how to build robust, complete systems. But he was describing that feeling, that that extra friction that he just didn't want. And so it was interesting as I was going through the process that I definitely felt that. I was like, this, uh, is it worth it? Am I sure? But then getting to the other side and suddenly having the compiler kick in and know about my system and be able to then be that magic pair that's looking over my shoulder and saying like, oh, you missed a spot. Oh, you got to change this over here. What do you mean by that? And it's like, well, you know what I mean? It's like, no, I don't. I know a lot of what you mean, but you need to tell me what you mean right here. And then I tell it, this returns a string or whatever it is that I tell TypeScript. If TypeScript ever reaches out for a voice, I I really hope they reach out to you because that was delightful. (laughs) I feel like I really captured the ethos of the TypeScript compiler. It's like a friend, but it's like a friend that's going to keep you honest. That's so interesting to me, the idea that someone who is very experienced with TypeScript also acknowledges some of the pain that comes with it when choosing for that approach and you're starting out with something new. My mind is all about testing right now with like the the RSpec class that I'm co-teaching. And one of the areas that comes up is we talk about some of the benefits of test first and test after. And this also feels true for like adding types first versus coming back and adding types later is sometimes there does seem to be enough friction where you really want to make a little progress first and then go back and add some structure to the thing that you're working on. Because I do lean heavily on tests to help me design my code and think about the interface of my code. But then sometimes I'm just like, I'm not even sure yet. Like I'm not even in a space to think about the design. I just want to make a little progress first and then circle back to think about what this interface is going to look like. So that's very encouraging to hear from other people also express that from the type perspective that yes, it's sometimes easier to default to ignoring types for a little bit to make a little bit of progress and have that win and then circle back to finalize the thing that you now feel more confident about. Yeah, I think it's important to, to sort of be honest in these discussions. Like there is a cost to all of these things. They're not free. And we just determine that they're worth it. But ideally, you get a little bit of experience, you feel the positives, and then you invest more in them. Like Even as I was introducing TypeScript into this project, I threw a bunch of any's at stuff for a while just to get forward progress. Like I wanted to get to a state of compiling. And then I think I actually ran into a case where something wasn't telling me what I expect. Like the TypeScript compiler was just like, yeah, that looks fine. And I was like, what do you mean that looks fine? I know that that's broken. And then I saw that it was because I had written the type as any somewhere way up the up the chain. So it was really my fault. TypeScript was doing exactly what I told it to. But the like gradual incremental, but then eventually getting to that place of I have faith that it will be worth making this investment. Like I, I definitely knew that I wanted to port the code base to TypeScript at some point. And it was interesting for me choosing when in the sort of work through of this project that I chose to do that. I think if I had waited a little bit longer, it would have been all the more painful to do that. But if I had done it earlier, then there wouldn't have been as much there. Like it wouldn't have had enough of the stuff 
maybe that's not true. Just starting with it probably would have been great. But again, for reasons, I did not do that. Oh, there is actually one interesting thing that I used for the first time on this, which is the TS underscore routes gem. And so what this does is it looks at your routes configuration in Rails, and it will basically lets you run a rake task to dump out the routes into a TypeScript file. So you do have to set up a build step or other things, but it's really nice because it configures them with proper typing. It knows where there are positional parameters. It accepts an options hash, et cetera, et cetera. But within TypeScript, you now have named functions for each of the routes in your system. So rather than doing string concatenation on the front end, you have type safety and just sort of nominal safety. You know what are the routes and what are not the routes. You're not just making stuff up. And if you change a route or if you change, you know, a namespace structure or anything like that, presuming you've got it properly wired up into your build configuration, then you'll know that, which is nice. Yeah, that sounds incredibly useful. And the last thing, just to like sort of continue on with my theme over the past few episodes, is Svelte is fantastic. And the more I use it, the more I like it, the more particularly the combination of inertia and Svelte and the sort of, it's not optimistic UI, but it feels feels sort of like a single page app, but it's not. It's more like a Rails app, but has fancy animated stuff in a way that I'm happy about. I really, really am enjoying this technological pairing and sort of the that structure architecture feels like too fancy of a word so i don't want to use it but that is probably the word for what i'm doing here the architecture of inertia and rails and svelte is fantastic oh and typescript so in this conclusion of the architecture choices and good idea bad idea it sounds like we've landed on good idea oh yeah and tailwind that one too they're all great. I love them all. <laughs> I honestly have never... Can't forget Tailwind. <laughs> can't forget Tailwind. I honestly have not felt as productive ever in my career. I would say that combinations because it's building on the foundation of all the things I know about Rails and, oh, cool, sidekick for background jobs. That's great. I know that deeply and intimately, and I trust it, and I can send mail and all of those things, but I also can have a gradually enhanced front end, and I know how to do CSS now because I never knew how to do that before, and Tailwind makes me feel like I know how to do CSS but also forces me to use M's, which are good units for CSS. Yeah, that's a powerful combo. I love when you make big statements like that. Like this is the most productive that you felt ever. That's incredible. I tend to couch all of my statements. I'm like, well, it's fine. I'm using a thing. And no, I'm willing to go on the record and say, I absolutely love this stack. I've actually been trying to find an acronym for it. It's Rails, Inertia, Svelte, and Tailwind. So that's R-I-S-T. So yes, wildly productive, excellent stack of technologies. Uh, still looking for an acronym, but here we are. And on that note, should we wrap up? Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. This show is produced and edited by the wonderful Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review in iTunes as it really helps other folks find the show. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed or reach me at svicari on Twitter. And I'm at Chris Toomey. Or host at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. I asked for lava rocks and it gave me volcanoes, so. Yeah, because that's what the words mean. (laughs) I mean, it's fair on Google's part. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.